Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is Thursday, December 21st. We are close to Christmas. So, happy holidays to everyone. You know, today was one of those days that I just had so much different emotions coming through at work and just in life. You know, I was out on a run. I usually I, I usually read or listen, or not read, <laughs> read on a run. I usually listen to a podcast or an audiobook when I'm running. But today I decided to blast French rap, Olivia Rodrigo, and some Gunna Young Thug type of stuff. I don't know. I just needed to kind of get lost in my thoughts. And music sometimes takes me there quicker than other things. And, you know, I was just thinking about how 2023 started off as one of the worst years in a long time for me. And the end of the year, it's been one of the better in a long time. And that's just thankful to friends and family, you know, my parents, my coworkers, just just a lot of people. And yeah, um, just had a great kind of exchanging of gifts today at work. One of my close coworkers, it was his last day, so there was that kind of sadness. I had a had an interview or kind of conversation for that job I can't really talk much about, but the one I'm still hoping to get, but the process takes quite some time. And so had a conversation after a while of not hearing anything today. So just lots of moving pieces and enjoying where I'm at now, but also being kind of a nomad nomad that likes to keep moving. And (laughs) I've had to up the mileage in my runs just to still get that same meditative effect. But I, I just find the only time I can really think deeply about these things is when I'm out on the roads or out on the trails, just running and moving. And sometimes when I'm, when I'm moving, Um, my mind is relaxed, but when I'm not moving, my mind is in chaos, I find. So anyways, long story short, it's just been a really interesting year, um, from Chicago to, to back to Reno Tahoe, you know, where I grew up. So anyways, moving on, (laughs) let's start with a quick little recap. So I've talked about how Colorado has barred Trump from being on the primary ballot, right? Well, now Texas is talking about not allowing Joe Biden on the Texas one. I'm not actually sure why. They're claiming because of his border issues, even though the border has been an issue for both parties for quite some time. <sighs> it's exhausting. I, Laura Ingram had on, I think it was Ken Paxton, and he was saying Biden should be barred from running and should not be on the ballot because of how he's treated the border. It's, it's, it's an insurrection act. I don't think like immigration policy exactly qualifies for that. I'm not, I'm not an immigration law expert. I'm not a lawyer, but that just seems like it's insane. And basically, that is where the Republican Party is now, is they basically say, oh, you're going after Trump? Well, we're going to double down and respond in the same way, even though we actually have no legal precedent for it. Also, uh, also the fall, the somewhat tragic Shakespearean fall of Rudy Giuliani continues. CNN notes that Rudy Giuliani filed for bankruptcy in federal court in New York on Thursday. We have to remember that this is just a day or two after that jury ordered him to pay nearly $150 million to those former Georgia election workers for defamation. And we have to remember this involves the uh, Georgia election workers, former Georgia election workers, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, whom, you know, he lied about, said they were I think they were popping like Tic Tacs or something, and he said that they were smuggling votes and doing drugs and all this stuff, and it led to them being just attacked online and in person, a lot of racism involved, 
and he completely ruined these two women's lives. They said they had to wear masks in public, and they still try not to even go out and be seen. And he just really ruined these people's lives. And so, so yeah, I mean, he <laughs> he already is being ordered to pay $150 million, And then I saw that there's a new suit by the same people for like $160 million because he defamed them again after this first defamation case ended a couple days ago. Because Rudy is just a bumbling drunk walking around spewing bullshit and trying to protect himself. And you just wonder how this guy was America's mayor at one time. I mean, it's truly a Shakespearean level collapse. And... <laughs> According to this bankruptcy filing, Giuliani says he has debts, debts between 100 million and 500 million, and his assets are up to 10 million. The thing is here is like I don't know how he pays all this money to the two Georgia women. So maybe he ends up in jail. I've seen some people say that maybe he does end up in jail over this if if he can't pay his debts. And he also he also has $1 million in unpaid taxes among his liabilities, as well as hundreds of thousands of dollars owed to lawyers and accountants. I don't think Trump ever paid him. <laughs> and U.S. District Judge Beryl Howell said in her order Wednesday that Giuliani had escaped revealing his worth by refusing to turn over evidence he had in the case before trial, never acknowledged previous court orders for him to reimburse the women for his attorney's fee, and repeatedly claimed he's broke and the verdict would severely hurt him. So they are throwing the book at him, and it's it's kind of a tragic comedy. And, you know, there was a time when Rudy seemed reasonable. Maybe he never was. Again, I've always said that if Rudy passed away in 2007, his legacy would be much different. And it's a shame because these poor women's lives have truly been ruined. So I can't feel too bad for Rudy. I mean, he's created this situation. He was globetrotting and peddling off influence and trusted Trump and got too deep into the rabbit hole of the 2020 election and accountability is good. That's what I've been telling all my friends and anyone who asked me what I think about all this stuff is I'm like, you need accountability or people will keep abusing the system. And he abused the system and he is being held accountable. And just all reports say the guy has completely lost it. So uh, the main thing I wanted to kind of focus on today is how Argentina is about to become a public policy nightmare. So first, I'll give a background on Javier Millet, who is the new sworn-in president of Argentina, and kind of his austerity measures or his idea of trying to fix Argentina, which has insane inflation, the peso is completely devalued, and he wants to do some pretty extreme austerity measures. So then, after we give that background, I kind of want to get into his shock therapy and some of the public policy and monetary policy that he wants to do inside of Argentina, involving slashing spending, raising taxes. He thinks he's, I, I think his intention is that he has a little bit of a grace period because he just got into office. So he's trying to get as much done as possible now. He is not popular in Congress, so he's trying to bypass Congress. And it looks like he's trying to do a lot through emergency powers, which we obviously saw even President Trump and Biden do during the pandemic. And so he is declaring an emergency, bypassing Congress, and putting out some pretty insane austerity measures. Before we get into it, I should also just note for those maybe who don't follow economics and all this quite as much, but austerity is basically responding to a short run decline in the economy, like a depressive moment in the economy, and you do so by raising taxes and or usually and cutting spending to balance the budget during this economic event. And it's a pretty controversial way of doing things. 
the use of austerity measures have been seen as problematic because many economists have pointed out that they have contradictory effects and usually exacerbate ongoing economic recessions. We saw this happen in places like Spain and Italy and France during the you know financial crisis 2008 to like 2015 for a lot of Europe. And the United States did stimulus and basically tried to invest in the economy and try to bring more vigor to the economy. And a lot of the European Union did the opposite due to just regulatory issues. They took austerity measures and places like Greece just really had a fucking bad time because of that. And I will get into more details later, but let's get to Javier Millet, current president of Argentina. So he was sworn in as president of Argentina on December 10th, and he basically did not paint a rosy picture. That's kind of the new thing with the populist type of people. You don't sugarcoat things. You just say everything's effed up, and I'm going to stand as a bulwark against it and do something about it, and only I can fix this. So he said in quotes, translated from Spanish, there is no alternative to austerity. He warned that tough times lay ahead. And, of course, with austerity, that is usually true. He also, he also then laid out some, a pretty somber message, but fans liked it. And the interesting point here is that usually <laughs> talking about austerity measures is political suicide, especially in places like Argentina. But it seems like, it seems like his, his moment, his window of opportunity has come here, and it's arrived, and he is the he, he's kind of the perfect public policy vision for this moment and the timing is right. And instead of, you know, people wanting him out, fans were cheering. They were raising chainsaws into the air. His whole messaging thing was about promising to cut down the size of the state. And he has the chainsaw. I remember he says, se quita la economía, se quita el gobierno, se quita, what, what was it? He was saying, Ah, se quita el departamento de finanzas, se quita, you know, just he's saying we're going to cut this and that. He's riding on a boat talking about that. It's a pretty funny video. If I can find it, maybe I'll try to play it, even though I don't have a huge Spanish listening audience, so it might be pointless. But anyways, yeah, he just he just goes on a rant about all the government he's going to cut. But anyways, basically, on December 12th, so this is two days after he's inaugurated, the shock therapy is following. And on December 12th, The Economist writes about how Luis Caputo, the, the new economy minister, unveiled a pretty radical series of economic reforms. The Economist writes here in quotes, he announced a devaluation of the peso by over 50% and promised to slash electricity and transport subsidies. Half the number of gov- government ministries from 18 to 9, fuck, suspend public works and reduce federal transfers to Argentina's 23 provinces. The government reckons these cuts amount to almost 3% of GDP. And yeah, I mean, this just sounds like textbook austerity here. And also, <laughs> alongside this, he is going to raise taxes on imported goods, which is, th- th- these raises are actually kind of insane, 7.5% to 17.5%. He also wants to extend a tax of 15% on all exports. Um, there's an existing tax of 30% on soya beans, which will be maintained. That's a, the export of soya beans. And I mean... <sighs> As someone who used to be pretty engaged in libertarian circles before I became more of kind of a center-left, center-right, whatever you want to call me, I um, I mean, I follow a lot of libertarians, and just saying, this doesn't really sound very libertarian, but for his defense, and I've talked about Javier Millet before, I mean, the guy is crazy, <laughs> clones his dogs, you know, rock band guy, I mean, he carries the chainsaw around, 
he's completely insane. His hairdo, he looks like a Beatles cover band, like a washed up Beatles cover band. But he is a pretty smart economist. I will say that. So anyways, other than importing or raising taxes on imported goods and exported goods, um, he also has talked about how child benefits will double, which I guess is good as will the value of government food cards for the country's poorest, which is fine. And again, the, the idea is cut spending, temporarily increasing taxes to raise revenue. Not very libertarian, but whatever. And he wants to basically lower the annual deficit from over 5% of GDP to zero by the end of 2024. A lot of outside economists think this might be quite difficult just because of the lack of popularity he has in Congress. And also the fact that he's, he only has a little bit of a grace period, a honeymoon period, I guess you could say, to get some of this done before he probably most likely experiences opposition. So now moving on. So he announced these things around the 10th to 12th of December. And over the last week, he now has put out some pretty fascinating reforms that are more specific. Again, he is de he's declaring an, um, an economic emergency for two years and he's hoping during this period that he can issue wide-ranging decrees. But he's circumventing Congress to do so. The Economist notes here in quotes, he announced a sweeping package of over 300 measures to deregulate many sectors of Argentina's economy. His government also wants to introduce a bill to shrink the size of the state. For that, he will have to face Congress. For the latest reforms, Mr. Millet avoided his body, sorry, this body, by declaring an economic emergency. So, also, looking at his popularity in Congress, he's bypassing Congress because he has little support in it. His coalition controls like 10% of seats in the Senate and 15% in the lower house. So he's like, hell no, I'm not going to be able to get anything passed there. So got to do something different. Again, there's something ironic about a libertarian using big government to cut the state for libertarian reasons. There's just something very ironic about that. But anyways, let's get into some of the reforms. He wants to deregulate unions. He's very anti-union. Also, one of the reforms opens the door to privatizing um, 33 of the state-owned companies, which is pretty interesting and something I'm kind of torn on but not totally against. Another change will introduce competition in protected industries, which I am for. Again, I'm just going to say before I get into more of these, some of the things he's doing here I actually quite like, and other things I think are insane. Like union busting, I don't like. Putting competition into protected energy sectors, I think, is not a particularly bad idea. The Economist also notes in a different article, nestled in the 83-page package is a clause that could also lay the foundations for the dollarization of the economy. Now, this is the one that I think sounds insane. Might not even be constitutional, but... It basically talks about it. It is trying to make it so that contractual obligations and debts can be settled in a foreign currency, such as the U.S. dollar. But it's not legal tender in Argentina right now, so they're trying to find workarounds for that. His decrees also, and this is something I also like, his decrees are looking to boost generic overbranded drugs, which which a lot of economists are saying could reduce the cost of medication. The The one that I find kind of interesting here is severance payments. Apparently, they are thinking about, mainly in the public sector, 
replacing severance payments with unemployment insurance. And this would be after a collective bargaining agreement. And then they would have the power to be able to slowly reduce that. I don't know if that's particularly good for the individual. I, I know it's not really good for the individual. And all of this to me shows that Millet, no matter what you think of him, I do not, again, this guy is not the Argentinian Trump, like I have seen so many American commentators call him. He's just not. He is an anarcho-capitalist, an anarcho-libertarian, and he is a trained economist. You don't have to agree with him just to understand that he is not, it's just, there's no similarities here other than the cult of personality thing, which a lot of these types are like. But the interesting thing to me is that there are not a lot of libertarians in our, I mean, in, um, in South America. You see more a lot of like hardline right and socialist left types, right? You have like former generals on the right and socialists like Hugo Chavez and Victor Maduro, for example, that believe in nationalization of everything, cutting off foreign trade. And then you have like the right-wing military dictatorships that believe in like the Chicago model and just complete like industrialization and neoliberal neoliberal spending procedures. And so it is interesting to see a guy like him who is kind of taking all these different policies. And I think that Argentina has had such a problematic model of just going back between like the Kushners, it's kind of the center left, the Peronist eras, and where you've seen just the right and the left utterly fail. So I think if you do have a kind of a libertarian economist who has very radical views of modern monetary policy and on how to run the state, I'm not saying it's going to work. I'm not even saying it's going to be good for the country, but it's something different. And it looks like, from my opinion, the status quo is not working in Argentina. Now, before we move on to the tragic shooting in Prague, which is the last thing I'll talk about, it's going to be a little bit shorter episode, I did just want to spend a minute talking about austerity measures. And I I can't really say I'm a big fan of them. Um, Now, American Progress has a pretty interesting article on the U.S. economy after recessions. And it comes to the conclusion that basically the failure to stimulate the economy and push out recessions has irreversible negative long-term term effects on the economy. And I'll keep the paper, I mean, I'll keep this somewhat short, but basically it talks about how in a slack economy or one that is um, operating below its potential, such as Argentina, it, it writes here in quotes, austerity, taking money out of the economy to balance government budgets is especially bad policy. Whether via tax hikes or cuts in government spending, contracting the government's budget during a recession reduces gross domestic product or GDP by more than the size of the cuts, possibly as much as three or more times. And, and I think to go even further into that, Basically, what what you're doing is you're throwing a wrench into a system that is not used to these cuts and spikes, and it is basically throwing the entire system into chaos. And so, yeah, you can say, well, we're raising taxes and cutting spending, but if the country and the status quo of the country is not designed to do that, it can be pretty problematic going down the road. Now, I, I should note that austerity usually is more of the right-wing way of doing it. 
But I personally agree with this American Progress article and how the United States dealt with the recession over Europe. I think when it comes to domestic monetary policy, stimulus works better than austerity. And we have to remember that kind of in the simplest terms, stimulus and austerity are just like yin and yang, opposite reactions. But they both happen during recessions. And recessions obviously, which which Argentina's kind of, I mean, again, Argentina's a unique situation because Argentina's kind of been in what I would call a, a kind of cold recession or kind of just a perma recession where it's just struggling. And Either way, though, I guess you could define what's happening in Argentina in some form of that because there's lower tax revenue. But I would argue the government should engage in stimulus, kind of the Keynesian economic view, which involves issuing more debt to finance tax cuts and potentially additional spending to raise aggregate demand and GDP. Austerity is the opposite, responds to the short term, thinks in the short term by raising taxes, cutting spending to balance the budget. And Argentina just hasn't been able to do this for a long time now. And so I don't know if now's the time to do it. But look, guys, that's why this episode is called Argentina is about to become a public policy nightmare, because it looks like in real time, we're going to see what happens here. But but I guess I think the last thing I'll just add is that I think this just depends if Millet and the Argentinian policymakers, I guess it depends if he can actually do anything. But it also depends on something that, that economists make uh, strong distinctions between, which is the short run versus the long run. As American Progress writes here, in the long run, demand is assumed to meet supply. But in the short run, this need not hold. And what they're talking about is how central banks can affect aggregate demand. But aggregate supply is basically driven by these long-term ideals that are actually, they're actually pretty difficult to manage. So in the short run... The government can raise input or sorry, output by increasing demands and it can actually make impacts. But then when you look into the long run, you don't really know if raising demand or shrinking demand really impacts any of this. And then you also have to worry that maybe it just increases prices, which we've seen happening in Argentina for a while. So anyways, fun stuff, but we're going to pretty much see an experiment in modern, modern economics play out in Argentina, which as an outsider, is going to be fascinating, but if you're an Argentinian person, I can understand why there are scheduled protests going on against this. Last, uh, but certainly not least, uh, I did just want to touch on a tragedy that is, it's something that we experience quite a lot in the United States, but is a lot less common. And this is a shooting that happened in Prague in the Czech Republic. I, I have to say, Prague is one of my favorite cities in Central Europe. I've been there, I think, three times. Yeah, three times. And, I mean, it just is a perfect, perfect quintessential Central European city that is clean, welcoming, cheap, great food, people are nice. Also, I'm Polish-Czech, so maybe I'm just a little bit biased because I have heritage from there. But anyways, it is a great place. Um, I've been there in the winter and in the spring. And it is just a vibrant city that I would go back to time and time again and find something new. I'll never forget, I really became an anti-communist when I went to the, the Museum of Communism in Prague. And you looked at how Prague was kind of in the middle of you know Czechoslovakia's control by the Soviet Union and how they had these color revolutions that never worked out. And it, it just really turned me 
I, I'm going to butcher the quote because it's been so long, but basically it said the problem in this museum, there was a guy, our, our guide said, the issue with communism is that the bureaucrats and the economists and the scientists and the public policy experts were all forced to be ditch diggers because they didn't agree with the state. And all the ditch diggers who went along with the state became the bureaucrats. And I thought that was really interesting is the intelligentsia was crushed. And that will always ring in my head. But anyways, great place. Great, great place. Unfortunately, 50, at least 15 people, they say the death toll is probably going to rise, were killed and about 25 were injured in a shooting at the, at the university in the center of Prague. Czech police said that the gunman was a student and he had been eliminated. This one's fascinating to me because gun crime is rare in the Czech Republic, but it's also the only country I could think of in Europe where citizens have a constitutional right to bear arms. They do have pretty stringent tests, but the guy who did this shooting I was reading, he did own a bunch of guns, all legally, and the chief of, of the Prague Police Department described the shooter as an excellent student with no criminal record. Not a lot of other information was provided, but basically this guy had legally obtained guns and there were no red flags. So kind of the worst case scenario there. The AP has a good piece I was reading to kind of get into the details of this. It writes here in quotes, police gave no details about the victims or a possible motive for the shooting at the building located near the Vlatva River in Jean Palak Park. Czech Interior Minister Vít Rakusin said investigators do not suspect a link to any extremist ideology or groups. From my understanding, it sounds like this guy had some issues, had a lot of guns, and something happened that triggered him. And I think this just, again, shows, like, sometimes you want to put something, you, you want to put some sort of plot, some sort of extremist ideology or group or terrorism, but sometimes you just have these random events caused by people with problems, and they happen. And this just reminds me that these, these issues do happen outside of the U.S., though not very common. And I guess I was surprised to see this in a lot of ways. And, and, and the scarier part, too, is that I'm glad this didn't expand out of the university. Not glad, because 15 people died and probably more are going to. But the building where this happened, Jean Polish Square, it's a busy tourist square in Prague's Old Town. For example, it's just a few minutes away from the Old Town Square, where right now there's a popular Christmas market with thousands of visitors. So I'm kind of surprised that this didn't expand further out and you didn't see this go into a Christmas market or whatnot. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just tragic. I mean, there's just not a lot of good news out there. So sorry to depress you guys. But also the bigger point here is that this actually was the nation's worst mass shooting. Because The Economist notes here, previously, the nation's worst mass shooting was in 2015. Or no, sorry, this is the AP still. But it says, previously, the nation's worst mass shooting was in 2015 when a gunman opened fire in the southeastern town of Uerski Brod, killing eight before fatally shooting himself. So, double. But this just tells me is that you really can't put a rhyme or reason or pinpoint the exact reason why people do this. But generally, people are just unwell. Mental health is really not doing well. And of course, it's worse in the U.S., I think, just by the volume of guns and just our lack of mental health care, the access to firearms, the poverty question, the meaning question, the lost question, the bowling alone concept, where there's just not a lot of community anymore, makes you willing to just shoot up people in your community because you don't care about them. 
I always thought Europe was different because there is a more communal nanny state type of vibe, but it does tell me that nowhere is completely safe and we just have we just have a lot of issues. And I I am I guess I'm not particularly surprised that this is a young college man again from everything I've read, which which just seems unfortunately to be the the criteria in most of these. So anyways, enjoy your Thursday. I think I said Friday at the beginning of the show. So if I did, apologies, but it's Thursday, December 21st. Anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Adios.